Please pray with me. Lord God, this is your holy word. We ask that you would teach us, that you would speak to us from it, and that you would cause it to go forth, that it would accomplish all that you have set out for it to do. We pray, Lord, for the hearers, that you would open the eyes of their hearts, that you would unstop deaf ears. We pray for the speaker, that you would give him boldness and confidence and courage to proclaim your word. Father, we pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen. In a story that I'm sure many of you are familiar with, there's a man named Christian, and he's journeying along a path, a path that leads from the city of destruction to the city of Zion. And this path is filled with many trials that he will face, dangers and difficulties, many different obstacles that Christian has to face on his journey. But of all those obstacles that he faces, none of them compare to Christian's encounter with Apollyon, who is none other than the prince of the power of the air, the ruler of the city of destruction, and to top it all off, Christian's former master. Christian, as he's walking along the path, he sees Apollyon standing directly in front of him in his path. And there is no way around him to the right or to the left. He must go and confront him. And as Christian approaches, Apollyon recognizes Christian. And he says to him, you are my subject. You are bound to me. What are you doing here in the king's highway?" You don't belong here. You belong in my domain. And Christian flat out tells him, he said, Apollyon, you are no longer my master. My allegiances have changed. I serve a new master now. I'm a citizen of a new kingdom. I no longer belong to the city of destruction, but to the city of Zion. And Apollyon, infuriated, attacks Christian, and he battles with him. And the text of Pilgrim's Progress says that the battle raged all day from morning till evening. And very near the end of the battle, Christian falls down. And Apollyon, as he moves in for the death blow, ready to destroy Christian, Christian grasps his sword of truth, the word of God, and shouts, When I fall, I shall arise victorious. And Christian wounds Apollyon with the words of Scripture. And Apollyon counts his losses and flies away. And Pilgrim Christian continues on, walking towards Zion, his city, and his home. This story of Christian, this Pilgrim's progress, this is the story of each of us, isn't it? I mean, that was John Punyon's point when he wrote Pilgrim's Progress, as he sought to unfold the message of the Bible and to show how you and I, who were destined for destruction, who wallowed in sin and unrighteousness, and yet God transferred us from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light. And now we walk this road towards Zion, one step at a time. This morning, 
We're going to be looking at Ephesians chapter 2, which describes exactly this process. And as we walk through these 10 verses, Paul explains how this happens. That's what he's getting at. How it is that we have been transferred from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light. And he shows us this and he shows us how, what this means for us today, what it means for the here and now, as we, followers of Christ, walk the road to Zion. I mean, this passage has important bearing for our lives today. But before we can get to that, before we can talk about the here and the now, Paul tells us about, or before we can get to our day-to-day lives, Paul first goes back to the beginning of our story. And he tells us who we are. He tells us where our identity lies. But even before he does that, he reminds us who we once were and where we came from. Paul begins in chapter 2 by telling us that we were once children of wrath. Children of wrath. In verses 1 through 3, the scriptures go back into our past. And they remind the people of God what their condition was before they came to know Christ Jesus. They remind us who we once were. Sometimes if you want to know who a person really is or why they do something, you really need to know where they come from, what their background is. Uh, My mom, for instance, insists that at Christmas time we only buy fun gifts for each other. Absolutely nothing practical is allowed for Christmas. But that's because when she was a little girl, she never had any fun toys. She never got to experience those things. She was given wool socks and something else that was very practical. But you see, her past explains her present. And so Paul, likewise, tells us what our background was, what our past is. And he tells us we were dead in our sins, sins in which we once walked. He tells us we followed the prince of the power of the air. So what exactly does that mean? What does it mean that we were dead in our sins? Well, people of God, when you're dead in your sins, you can't escape them. It's as though you're a blind man walking around a room that has no doors and no windows. But that doesn't matter to you because that is what you understand. This is all you have ever known. You can't conceive of a world any other way that is around you. You're not even looking for a way to escape because you don't know there's a problem. You don't know there's anything wrong. And you're content to wallow in your sins and your own unrighteousness. And you are completely helpless and unable to do anything about it. You're just like that baby lying in a field In Ezekiel 16, you lie there flailing your arms and your legs, but there is nothing that you can do to change the sinful condition that you're found in. You naturally will indulge your sinful passions, doing whatever is right in your own blind eyes. And this condition that we're stuck in, this condition that's been brought about by Adam, our forefather, our representative, long ago when he disobeyed God and ate of the forbidden fruit of knowledge of good and evil. This natural condition that we find ourselves in that I've just been describing is called spiritual death. You and I are dead 
men, walking in our sins. And it can't get any worse than that, right? Well, it can, and it does. Because verse 3 tells us that not only do we find ourselves dead in our sins, unable to do anything about it, but on top of that, we are children of wrath, deserving nothing less than the wrath of God for our disobedience to him, for turning from God and his laws, and instead following the world's laws, following the laws of the prince of darkness following the sinful passions of our heart. And for these things, we have earned nothing but God's wrath and judgment. He can't sweep our sin under the rug. He can't wink at our sin. He is a holy God who cannot look upon sin. And as long as we follow after the prince of darkness, as long as we are enslaved to do his bidding, the wages we will ultimately receive Scripture tells us is the wrath of God against sinners. For the wages of sin is death. It's plain and simple. So the question really is, what hope is there for dead men? What hope is there for the blind, for those who are spiritually helpless? What hope is there for those who wallow in their sins with no way out of, by doing, that, doing it on their own? Well, we can hope in the promises of verses 4 through 9, where children of wrath become children of mercy. Children of mercy. This really is where you get to the uh, heart of the text that is before us. Ephesians tells us that God did not leave us to wallow in our sins. He did something about it. God brought the people of God from death to life. Notice the words here, but God, where this beautiful contrast is made. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones says that these are some of the most beautiful words in all of Scripture. But God, knowing our condition, knowing the helplessness of our state, knowing who we were and what we did against him while we were still enemies of God, God interceded. God, being rich in mercy, verse 4, because of his great love by which he loved us, when we were still dead, when we were dead in our trespasses and our sins, when we were enemies of God, deserving wrath and condemnation, when we didn't even know how bad off we were, God reached down and made us alive. He spoke to the wailing or flailing babe in the field and said, live, and we came to life. We became like Lazarus, who when called forth from the dead, awoke and rose. Charles Wesley puts it like this. He said, long our imprisoned spirit lay, fast bound in sin and nature's night. Mine eye diffused a quickening ray. I awoke, the dungeons flamed with light. My chains fell off, my heart was free. I rose, went forth, and followed thee. Amazing love. How can it be? And Charles Wesley and Paul both go on to explain exactly how it can be. And it's because our Lord Christ Jesus, he died for thee. And not only did he die for you, but he lives for you as well. Romans 5 tells us that he took up the job that Adam was never able to finish. 
Christ became the second Adam for us, living a perfect life, the life that we were to live before our God, so that just as sin came into the world through one man, Adam, leaving us all fast bound in our sin and our nature, prisoners to the dominion of darkness, so through this one man, the God-man, Christ Jesus, came grace that abounds for many. This God-man unites us to himself. He is our new representative, our new head, taking the place of Adam. And because of this, when he is raised from the dead, because he lived a perfectly righteous life and was made alive, as verse 5 tells us, it tells us that we too have been raised and made alive together with him. Because he ascended into heaven, we too will be raised and ascend into heaven with him. Because he sits in the heavenly places, we too will sit in the heavenly places with him. In other words, when you find yourself hidden in the righteousness of Christ, when you have been united to Christ by faith, when you have been made, you have then been made a citizen of heaven. Truly, a citizen of Zion, just like pilgrim Christian. And you are attached to Jesus as surely as your own head is attached to your neck and to your body below. And God, who is rich in mercy, who withheld this judgment from us, this great God who is gracious to us, giving us the unmerited favor of Christ Jesus, who made us alive by sending his only begotten Son in love and adopts us as children of mercy and grace. He gives it to the people of God all as a gift. Verse 8 goes so far as to say that every part of our justification, every part of our right standing before God is a gift. It's a present It's been packaged up in a pretty little box with red ribbons and bows on top. It's been given as a gift. This is one of the truths, this is one of the rallying points of the Reformation. Luther, Calvin, Ursinus, Zwingli, these men, heroes of the church, seeking to reform the church's worship and the the theology of the church, would not move on this point. That faith itself is a gift from God. He said, faith is an instrument. It is the empty hand that grasps hold of the salvation given to us in Christ. But God had to reach into the lives of dead men so that they would be able to grasp it. You can picture it. Lazarus. He's lying dead and wrapped up in the tomb. He's lying there, and someone holds out a gift for this dead man. Is he going to grab hold of it? God has come 99% of the way. Will Lazarus come the rest of the way? The answer is, of course not. He can't respond unless God reaches into the man himself and plants the gift of faith inside of him. Unless God does this, Dead men will never be able to come to life. People of God, the grace that is ours in Christ Jesus is completely and entirely a gift. Both the life that we receive by being united to Christ 
and the faith that we hold that reaches up to grasp this salvation are a gift. And God gives the whole package to us, even faith, so that no man may boast. Again, returning to the imagery of Ezekiel 16, God gives us everything that we need in our salvation. We were dead, and God made us alive. We were naked, and God clothed us. He adorned us with fine clothing and jewels. He goes far beyond anything we could imagine or ever hope for. He gives us nothing short of the mercy of God itself, the grace of Christ Jesus, showing his great overwhelming love. He even promises us heaven itself. But what about the here and now? It all sounds well and good. But what when this age that we live in doesn't look much like heaven? I told you earlier that this passage relates directly into our lives today. And Paul reminds us this by showing us in verses 7 and 10 that though we were children of wrath who have become children of mercy, we are still children in progress. Children in progress. If you'll remember back with me to the story of Christian, Christian certainly and truly had his citizenship transferred. He no longer belonged to Apollyon. He no longer belonged to the city of destruction, but belongs to his king, to King Jesus, and his city is Zion itself. But one thing you'll notice about Christian is that though this reality is true about him, though Apollyon really has lost his servant, and Christian belongs to the kingdom of light, as soon as the battle is over with Apollyon, Christian gets up, and he simply keeps walking. You see, dear Christians, Christian still has not arrived to the celestial city. He is still a pilgrim on the way, walking through a weary world. Though his entire earthly existence is informed by this truth, though everything he is and everything he will be has uh, is determined by him belonging to King Jesus, though he is no longer a child of wrath, though he still has to walk through ordinary, day-by-day, mundane moments, fighting against the world, the flesh, and the devil, fighting against his own sinful nature, walking through a wearisome world, and though he is doing this, He is doing this so that verse 7, the immeasurable riches of God's grace and kindness will be shown for ages to come. He's doing this because verse 10, he is God's workmanship created for good works in Christ Jesus, the God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. You see, Paul, after explaining that we are no longer children of wrath, but are now children of mercy, says, now that you are no longer dead men, walk like living men. God says, walk according to my patterns, walk according to my laws, according to my ways, not to earn your salvation. Verse 9 makes it very clear 
that our works are not entering into our right standing before God. Our right standing before God is not based on our own works, but on Christ's work and what he has accomplished. And yet, our works do enter into our gratitude, into our sanctification. In other words, God has called us to good works out of gratitude so that as we walk through this life for the remainder of our days, our lives will show forth the riches of God's mercy and grace by our lives. People of God, may we praise and thank our God for transferring us from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of life, for reaching down and making dead men live through the redemptive work of his Son. May we praise him that we are no longer children of, children of wrath, but of mercy and grace, children who have been united to Christ by faith. And may we, because of our gratitude for this immeasurable mercy, this gift that has been given, may we walk in good works, not to earn our righteousness for ourselves, but so that we might show forth the riches of his great mercy to a world filled are the sinners, plain and simple. And Father, you have seen us, you have seen the estate that we are in, and you have brought dead men to life again. Father, we pray that you would forgive us of our sins, that you would turn us to righteousness not because we need to seek favor in your eyes, but because you favor us. Father, we thank you for the grace that is ours in Christ Jesus. We thank you for the mercy that is is ours through him. We pray, Lord, that you would help us to see our identity, who we are. Help us to number our days and remember what you have done for us, even as we go throughout this short earthly existence as we were pilgrims here on the way. We pray, Lord, that you would guide us in these truths. In Christ Jesus' name we pray. Amen.